Hello, everyone. My name is Wes Bush. Wrote the book on product-led growth, and I have none other than my favorite co-host, Bramley. And today, we are with Jim, who founded Product Plan. So, Jim, for those that don't know you, can you just take a minute or two and just share a little bit more about your story, about why you founded Product Plan? Yeah, absolutely, Wes. I'm really excited to be here on the on the program today. I have almost 20 years of product management experience. Uh, most of my experience is in new product development. I helped uh, develop and launch products such as go to my PC, go to meeting, go to webinar. I actually wrote the product requirements for those products and, and really proud of what we did there. Those became uh, some of the earliest SaaS products in the market and became very successful. And, and I learned a lot through developing those, those products and made some mistakes along the way. And, um, and then that led me to work at an early stage enterprise SaaS company called Appfolio. And I was uh, one of the uh, founding team members of that company. And that company went public a few years ago and and was really successful at developing enterprise software for small and medium businesses. And through that experience, I really, really wanted to start my own company. And so I got together with a a buddy of mine and and co-founded a company called Product Plan. Now we realized that through our experience, the product managers had trouble communicating the product roadmap. And so began validating that concept with product management friends and colleagues and and realized that there was a lot of pain around prioritizing the roadmap, around communicating the roadmap. Companies, as, as you grow, as you probably know, have so much misalignment around the product strategy. And so we set out to solve that problem and in 2013 started Product Plan. Um, which helps product managers build and communicate their strategic roadmap. And uh, we're based out of Santa Barbara, California, growing uh, rapidly every year. Um, We decided to bootstrap the company, and so we're self-funded. And that's gone uh, particularly well for us. And now we have companies all over the world, um, big chunk of the Fortune 100. There are product managers in those companies using product plan and really excited about the potential where we could take the company. Awesome. So I'm always curious for any entrepreneur, like there's, you wanted to start a company, but why? Because it's a crazy amount of work, as you probably know, (laughs) there's a lot of risk and all those other things. So what was your why to start it? Yeah, well, I've always had an entrepreneurial bent. Even when I was a kid, I had a small company that um, you know sold golf balls and really, really enjoyed the idea of starting a business. And, and throughout my career, I've rarely been a W-2 employee for that long. I've always um, I've had roles in, in, in companies and then would set out. And at one point, I had a training company. I've been an independent author for technical books through Microsoft. I uh, have had a marketing company and, you know, I've had these different, you know, kind of incarnations of startups and really the entire time wanted to build a product. I wanted to build a product that something that I could grow, be passionate about and would build equity. And so I've always had that um, that inclination in me. And then through my experience with these companies, helping launch these products into the market where they're you know bringing it from a blank sheet of paper all the way through to market launch, helped me realize that I could I could do that. And so I'm a little bit older um, and a little more um, experienced, and realized that you know if if I want to do this, the time is now to do it. And so that's why 
in 2012, 2013, set out to, to build this company and haven't looked back. It was a fantastic move. And for entrepreneurs that are listening to this, that are on the fence about whether to do it, my advice is to jump off the cliff, that there's no better way to find out if it's the right thing for you. Because as, as you said, it is a lot of work, but I honestly have never thought about this as work. I've never thought about this as a job. It's something that I'm passionate about. I'm obviously very passionate about product management and the skills involved in that. So all of the work that we do here at Product Plan is really benefiting the product management community. We write a lot about product management and product management best practices. We put out a, a new book or a new study about once a quarter, at least, writing a couple of articles a week around product management. And so it's something that we... I and everyone here are really passionate about. And so that makes it so that when I wake up in the morning, it's not about it's not about going into work. It's something else. Amazing. And so you've witnessed really just like how product management has changed as a whole over the years. Mm-hmm. I want to hear and dig into that. Like how has product management changed from when you first started launching products? Yeah, absolutely. So this was pre-agile. So I'm really dating myself. Uh, but when we, for example, developed GoToMeeting, which uh, is an online meeting product, uh, which is comparable to Zoom, what we're using today, I wrote a product requirements doc. So I conducted market validation. I interviewed people who were using collaboration and online meeting solutions and those that weren't. And I developed some hypotheses around what sort of features we needed, what sort of competitive differentiation we could have in the market. And that's how we came up with the concept of this, at the time was very unique. It was this all-you-can-meet approach where you buy a single license and then you can have up to 10 people join your meeting for free. It was that all-you-can-use model that has now become very popular in, in software. But at the time, that was a unique thing. But in order to get to the the software, to develop the software, I wrote a very thick product requirements document, a PRD. And so we kind of predicted ahead of time what we thought the features needed to be in the product. And so this is not how software is developed today, as we know. We were thinking at the time, minimum viable product, right, for our V1 of the product. But we had pretty much baked in through the product specification and through the PRD what this thing would look like. Here are the 10 features it needed to have. Here is the audience that we're going to, you know, the market that we're going to attract and so on and so on. And I think that's one significant change in software development today, which is, you know, today I can use the lean startup model and I can start developing, right? Now, I, I usually talk to people about conduct your market validation first. Talk to 20 potential customers about what your solution could do and confirm that you actually will have buyers. But you really can start by just developing software and then testing into the market. You can develop prototypes and even high-definition prototypes. Put that in front of customers and get feedback so you iterate along the way. And so it has changed that part of the world, the product management world, has changed dramatically in the last few years. So, um, And I think that in combination with the ability to spin up servers through AWS, for example, makes it so much more cost-effective to start a company. Um, if we were to start product plan you know, 15 years ago, um, I think it would have been a much different scenario. We would have had to take venture capital and so on in order to get the company started. So I think that world of new product development has changed dramatically. And of course, with the 
product development lifecycle, introducing Scrum, for example, you know, through most of the product managers I speak with are using some variant of Scrum. And that is a new concept, you know, from where I was previously, where, you know, as a, as a product manager, you write up your product requirements document, and then you throw it over the fence, basically, into this black box, which somehow develops your software, you know, and there's interaction along the way, but it's definitely not as regimented as what you would see in Scrum or as flexible to adapt to learning along the way. So I think that's the, the biggest change, in my opinion. I'm really curious about that uh, process. Is that the same way you validated product plan, you know, using this process that you just talked about? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I I have a a fairly structured market validation process that I go through for both new products and large new changes to the product. So if we're looking at developing a a large new feature, for example, um, I'll go through this process. And it's essentially coming up with a hypothesis of what you think and then First, validating the problem. So I'll do about 10 interviews with potential customers to really thoroughly understand the problem that I'm solving. And then once I begin to hear a pattern, so if if I start to hear people say the same thing again in terms of the problem, then I know that I'm onto something. And, And when I get to the point of being able to predict what they're going to say in terms of their problem, then I know I can move on to the next phase, which is more of the solution validation, where I say, okay, well... Mr. Customer, I know that you have this problem, right? I can pretty much assure you that you have this problem. And and I know that it's valuable for you to solve that problem. Now it's time for me to figure out how high of a priority is it for you to solve that problem, right? Are you actually willing to pay money to solve that problem? And then what does the solution look like? What are the core features that this product has? What are the features that it doesn't have? I think that's an important element to the process. And then I'll interview about 20 people or so. Um, to really thoroughly understand the solution. And then through that process, you can start to kind of cherry pick what you think the features are that have to be part of the solution. And then along the way, as you get deeper into those conversations, you can start to float trial balloons about pricing to them. You can start to say, you know, so what do you think would be fair to solve this, you know, to solve this problem? Or you could say, well, what if this solution were $100 a month? You know, help me understand your thought process around that. And then you can start to work with the prospects to do the return on investment calculation. You can say, you know, so if you use this product, you could save 10 hours a week. What is that worth to you? And then they would come back with, you know, whatever the calculation is. And then you say, well, our solution is $100 a month. You know, then you can start to understand whether that calculation makes sense for them. And now you're getting into validating the sales process. And you start to ask questions about, well, oh, how would you pay for that? Would that be by credit card? Would I have to invoice your company? You know, are you the person who can actually write the check? You know, so you start to validate that part of the process. So for me, it's a, the, we did this with product plan, which is first start off by validating the product managers truly had a problem with product roadmapping around prioritizing products, communicating their strategy and so on. And then we came up with a hypothesis of what our solution could be. And this, when we started presenting these to product managers originally, we had some really, you know, in my opinion, some pretty ugly mock-ups of what this could look like, right? We basically used Keynote in the very beginning just to put together some really, really rough ideas just to give people a visual of what this could look like. And then we said, okay, it's going to have these features. And then, you know, five or so interviews in, we start to hear, we have to have an export feature 
in order to for people to export this roadmap. Oh, okay. Well, now the following interviews that we conduct, well, now we have an export feature. And at this stage, we're not developing any software. At the point at where we're validating the features and you know, validating the problem, we haven't invested anything in developing code. And so by the time we got to the point of saying, yes, we're going to launch a company. Yes, we know that we if we were to develop this, we're going to have customers who would buy, we'd invested probably less than a thousand dollars. And we did some analysis on, you know, buying some Google AdWords, for example, to drive them to a website, just to understand what the, the acquisition model could potentially look like. And so the cost was really minimal. And it was really just our time in, in investing time and in scheduling interviews and finding people to talk to, and then, you know, working on these really, really pretty ugly prototypes. And so how did you go from those ugly prototypes to we have product market fit and deciding like, when yeah. was that line in yeah. the stands where you're like, we got it. Yeah. Yeah. That's which to me, the, the process of getting to market fit, product market fit is so exciting. So it begins with before we've begun coding, we know that we have a pretty high probability of actually having customers who, who would buy these early customers or prospects that we talked with, many of them became our first customers. So that when we launched the product, the day that we launched the product, we were collecting credit cards. We were collecting payments. So it wasn't a situation of, you know, launch this thing and hope that someone will buy it. it we knew that we had people who would buy it because we'd been speaking with them and, and getting their advice. But then for us, product market fit happened after launch. So it began with us saying, okay, we're going to take the plunge We've lowered our risk enough. We know that there will be people who will buy. Let's start developing the product. So we found our first engineer who began to develop this product that became kind of a beta product that we put in front of customers. And then the time came for us to flip the switch to start collecting payments. And then at the point where we had people who were finding our product either organically or through paid channels, going through the try-buy process, purchasing on their own, and we were able to do that in a repeatable way. That's when we started to realize that we had product market fit. So for me, that's my definition of product market fit is, can we scale a business by using a repeatable sales process and have a product that solves a problem that people are satisfied with? That's product market fit. And that came a few months in after we launched, where we had customers who they would say, we love your product. If only it would do this, right? They would give us feedback, sometimes negative feedback about features that they wanted or maybe some frustrations that they had with their with the product. And for me, that's gold. As a product manager, that's where you want to be. You want people to be giving you sometimes very negative feedback about your product because it means that they're invested. You know, you don't, you don't want to be in a situation where you could withdraw the product from them and they don't care. You want them to have some, I guess, some skin in the game and to feel that, you know, if you were to take it away, that their, their life would somehow be a little bit worse off. And so that's, for me, is my definition of product market fit. And at this point, we're, you know, six years in, seven years in, and, you know, we're selling to very, very large organizations. And those organizations, once the adoption happens are continuing to buy more product plan. Other teams within the organization discover us and then they want their own licenses and product plans. So 
that for me is, is product market fit. When the customers are buying it in a repeatable way, a scalable, repeatable way, they're happy with the product, but still giving you feedback. And those existing customers are continuing to expand their accounts. Okay. And so I want to hear a little bit more about the first one, which is just people are buying in a repeatable way. Because I think a lot of that comes down to how you're selling it. And so right now, if I go to Product Plan's website, the first main call to action is try it free. And so it's definitely self-service. And so I want to know when you were first starting out, like what happens in that like place where you started off like doing all these interviews, very hands-on, and then it was more like a a kind of traditional sales-led process. And then it transitioned over to self-service and you were monitoring, people were buying on their own. And that was one of your check the box moments of like, hey, this is uh, working. <laughs> People are buying this, obviously, this is great. So um, yeah. can you take us through that story of just like, how did that process work for you? Like, what was that transition like? Yeah, absolutely. When we started this beta program that I was talking about, it was really manual. So it may have looked automated, but it was there was a lot of work happening behind the scenes. Right, We didn't have our billing system completely configured. But by the time that we actually launched, it was completely self-service. Now, I'm not saying the first-time user experience was good. In fact, I, you know, if I look back on that, that first-time user experience was you know, not a... I, I think for those people, it was probably not a great experience because you were thrown into this kind of this blank canvas almost, this blank roadmap. And you're faced with, what do I do? Right. And so it was also us reaching out to them once people either got into a trial or or they purchased and saying, How can we help you? So there was some manual, you know, interaction that happens, and there is still today. You know, we've we've automated a lot of this, and our our onboarding is now just so much better. And people are given options for how they want to start, whether they want to start with a template or whether whether they want to start with that blank roadmap. And then the, the tour that they get is really a lot of the things that we were manually doing back then, right? So kind of walking through the, you know, here's how you get started and here's a definition of these different areas of the, of the product and here are resources for you to learn how to roadmap. So those are all things that we were doing. They were, we were all doing very manually. But yet, even though back then it was still not a great experience, people were still buying. So we would get a number of people every month coming in, trying, putting down their credit card and buying. And then we said, well, how do we do more of that, right? And, and so then, then it becomes, how do we scale? How do we grow this? And uh, we made a determination very, very early on to invest in content marketing. So we wanted a, an inbound model, much like HubSpot's model. And you know, we all read the HubSpot book about how to do inbound marketing. And so that was part of the funnel was you know, understanding how people potentially find a product roadmap software solution, and it was through content marketing. And we've continued to pretty much double our content marketing every single year and invest in that because it really works. And that's where those you know, the studies that we do and the books that we do and the blog posts we write, those, those all come into play because of the early success that we had with content marketing. So then you know, those very first couple of months, we had you know, a few dozen people coming in and buying. And we said, "Mm, wow, this looks pretty good. We have people in an automated way buying this product. How do we do more of that? And it's really to attract them through content marketing and 
for us, for both my co-founder Greg and I, we felt strongly that we didn't want to have this really aggressive sales team approach. We really wanted, because we we were product managers, we knew how we wanted to be sold to. And product managers are very independent people. And they want to try new things. They want to have, you know, they want to be able to go in and try things on their own. And I think product managers by nature are very experimental. They're always looking at new products and trying new things. So we wanted to make it possible for them to try the product without necessarily feel like they're being sold to. And that's the way that we are today. We're still very much an inbound sales model. We do have account managers now, that product specialists that will work with, work with customers to try to understand their situation and how we could possibly you know, work with them and, and solve some of the problems that they're facing in their organization. But it is a very soft touch. And I'm, that's something I'm very proud of, that we haven't moved into this aggressive sales model. And so that's how we've evolved from those very early days of you know, finding this product market fit to where we are today. Okay. And so on that journey, what was the hardest thing about that? Because I know from firsthand experience for a lot of founders, whenever they uh, first launch, let's say that self-service model, they're nervous and rightfully so. Like if they haven't sold that way, it's a big jump. So Mm -hmm. what was your biggest challenge? Yeah. Well, fortunately, I had a lot of experience through GoToMeeting and those products because those were a self-service model. You could go through a try-buy process. And then if your footprint was big enough or your need was for, I can't remember what it was, five or 10 licenses, something like that, then you would speak with someone about it who would help you understand the right number of licenses to buy and understand your setup and, and in a sense, um, kind of close the deal, sell, sell that. But I had the fortune of coming from an environment where it was highly experimental and it was self-service. And so they did a lot of experimentation around, do you collect the credit card up front before the trial? Or do you let people, you know, try without putting down a credit card? You know, we, so we had all sorts of experiments. We had experiments around 14 day versus 30 day. We had experiments around the try it free as an orange button or try it free as a green button. And so we had that luxury, or I had that luxury of that experience. And so that, in, in a sense, informed how we approached product plan and that self-service model and gave us more confidence that it was possible to do. And then, but, you know, I'll tell you, the night that we launched, it was September 30th, and we are about to collect the very first credit cards from the first two customers. So I'm working with the first two customers to get their credit card information. And I'm nervous. And I don't know, one, if it's going to work. And two, whether, are these the only two sales that we'll ever get? You know, so, so there's always that fear. There's always that fear of the unknown. And it's always turned out, right? You'll learn from it. If it turns out that those were the only two customers that bought product plan, we would have learned. We would have changed something. Because we, we had validated that there's pain in the market. And when you find a problem, when you find pain, there's a solution for it. And people will pay you for it. You just need to figure out what the right mix is. And so we had that comfort. You know, I had the experience of, you know, go to meeting and go to webinar and go to my PC and those products, plus the experience to know that if we had, if we found a problem, that people are willing to pay for a solution to that problem. So that gave me a lot of comfort and knowing that that will be okay no matter what. And it turned out okay. We haven't had to pivot 
uh, like a lot of startups do. We, you know, we, I think we did a really good job at the very beginning with that MVP. If you haven't had to pivot, that's, that's pretty darn impressive. So yeah, thanks. on that journey of launching self-service model, what would you do differently with everything you know now, if you were to go back six, seven years ago and you just launched it with everything you know, I'm sure you would have done at least one thing differently. Like if you could just pick one, what would that main thing be that you do differently? Yeah, probably pricing experimentation. We had a hypothesis about pricing. Um, we had tested the pricing with people just in a, you know, in a, in a qualitative way. And then we launched and then we had, people were buying the product, but they weren't buying it as quickly as we wanted. So we started to do some pricing experimentation at the beginning. Something stuck, right? A price stuck. And then we introduced these packaged concept where you pay one price and then you get four licenses. And then for the next couple of years, we didn't change. And so that would be one thing that I would change with it is that I would do, I would find a way to develop a platform so that we could do better and more rapid pricing experimentation. And I think we would have learned a lot. And pricing is such a tricky thing. You know, it's people are, I guess, irrational about pricing. There's not, you know, it's, it's really hard to understand what the, you know, that price elasticity curve is and where, you know, where, at what point are people, where, where do you find the right value price mix? right? Where, where your product is delivering the right set of features. And, and even to this day, we still do pricing experimentation, but I don't think fast enough and rapid and, and often enough. Um, so that would be one, one area that I would change. And of course, you know, I think any product manager, I think would be, would tell you that they wish that they would move product out the door faster, right? That, you know, I think I, if we could hire more people in the beginning and move faster, you know, I think, that I think is a, a common thing that a product manager would say and an entre- entrepreneur. For sure. And I find that, that you mentioned pricing so interesting because whenever I was writing the book on product-led growth, one of the things that kept popping up in terms of the, the foundational elements of a product-led business is pricing. And I call it in a product-led business, the relationship between like your customer acquisition model and pricing is this weird arranged marriage because it's absolutely what it is like if you have your pricing out of whack your customer acquisition model is going to falter because what do most people do before they sign up for the free trial or premium experience they want to check out the pricing see if they can even afford the solution if they're going to invest all that time in testing it out they want to know if it's going to be an option or not so uh, it's so important and then if you just give everything away for free on a freemium model, it's like your pricing falls out the window. You're not going to make money. You're going to go out of business. So right. it's a, a fun relationship pricing has in a product-led business. Yeah, yeah. And you, you mentioned acquisition uh, cost and whether the cost of acquisition, you know, for a SaaS business, as you know, it's, you know, that cost of acquisition needs to be probably about three times less than the, you know, the lifetime value of, of customers. So there's that balance that you have to strike. And of course, you don't want to set prices arbitrarily. You want a price that matches the value that you're providing to the customers. And so there's that mix that has to happen. And the reality is that part of our acquisition model is paid. Like most, most SaaS companies, we have our, you know, we have our content acquisition, 
or that's organic. And then we also have a model of paid acquisition. And so that all has to pencil out. And so these are all considerations for the price. At the end of the day, my belief is that customers don't really care about your acquisition model. Customers don't really care about whether you're covering your costs. You know, they don't care about that. They want to know that, am I getting value for what I'm paying for? And, you know, am I getting some sort of return on investment for that? So yeah, price is a, is a, is a strange, strange beast. For sure. And so the other thing I want to go into is you build a product that sells itself and then you hired sales. So how did that work? Like, when did you decide, you know what, there is a huge opportunity here for us if we had someone in sales, Uh, because I'm looking at your pricing page right now, like you can Mm -hmm. sign up for like the business plan, which is 39 a month. And like, for most people, that that's nothing. Like that's the credit card. You could totally handle that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Enterprise and Enterprise Plus, you do have that demo CTA. So I want to yeah. know, like, when did you decide it just made a ton of sense to have someone, whether it's a product specialist, account manager, um, to yeah. take it on? Yeah, it's a great question. And and our original idea for the company was that this was completely self-service. That was and we knew at some point that we would move upstream, like most companies do. Most companies, eventually, you move upstream into larger companies, you move into the enterprise. And for us, it, that realization that that was going to happen happened much earlier than we expected. So, and it was a few years ago that we started to have companies who started buying these larger packages of licenses on their own. And that that surprised us. And then we realized, well, <laughs> I guess we need someone to help them through that process. Um, and then they started doing things that were more enterprisey. I guess. They started asking to be invoiced. And we said, for the longest time, we held off on that. We said, nope, credit card only. And that, that worked out okay for a couple of years um, where people started putting bigger and bigger amounts on their credit card because they didn't have an option. We said, we don't want to deal with that. And then eventually, you know, the deal sizes became bigger and we started getting more expansion in these organizations. And so it was a few years ago that we realized that we needed account managers. We now have, we now have an account management team, customer success team, and uh, people like that to really help with onboarding and adoption. And we invoice as well with our enterprise plan. So, you know, so that that whole process started a few years ago and much sooner than we expected, and which was really great. We had a few realizations early on that that kind of surprised us, which was we thought our original market, the initial adoption was going to be with product managers at software companies. The product managers working in a more traditional tech environment. And then we started to have companies coming through that were more brick and mortar companies. Um, We had companies coming through like municipalities and governmental agencies. We had financial services companies and banks and healthcare companies. We had hospitals that were signing up. We thought, hmm, that's interesting. Why is that? And then it turns out that this is going to make sense, but we didn't realize it until a few months in that every company is a software company. Every company has you know, their own digital projects. They have an IT organization that is managing the infrastructure and, and custom software that they're developing internally, for example. Every company has a website. Most companies are developing mobile apps and, and things like that. And all of that needs product managers, program managers, sometimes project managers. And uh, those people all need to be able to communicate what they're doing. 
And that's where product plan comes into play. So that that realization, along with us moving upstream, you know, earlier than we expected, those are surprises to us. You know, with you and your co-father coming from a product background, how did you go about in hiring your first salesperson? Uh, did you ask for advice from other experts or like, I'm curious how that went, like picking out which kind of salesperson you're, you're going to hire? Yeah. So uh, it's, it's a funny story because we didn't set out to hire a salesperson. We realized that we needed somebody to come in to help customers through that purchase process. And so that we thought didn't really require true sales skills. So I um, uh, lecture at University of California, Santa Barbara, and uh, have access to graduating students through through the programs there. And, and they have a, a program there called the Technology Management Program. And through that program, a student came up that was looking for something and she seemed to have the aptitude and kind of the internal drive and uh, talked with her professor and he said, give her a shot. So she became our first salesperson. And, you know, so it was a very, I think, organic way of starting the sales team. And now we have a much more formal process and we, we hire people with sales experience and SaaS companies. And, but in those early days, we needed someone who could wear a lot of different hats, someone who had kind of a combination of customer service skills, um, somebody with some ambition, you know, someone who's smart, someone who understands technology. And uh, so that was just the right combination for us. And, and I've always believed in you hire the right people at the right time and you don't necessarily overhire for where you think you're going to be. Um, so for example, our first sales hire wasn't a VP of sales. Our, our first sales hire was somebody who could really do the job, who could actually get on the phone with a customer and say, oh, let's talk about how many licenses you need. Let me give you a demo of the product. So some pretty basic skills. Um, and then we grew the organization from there. And how is that person's like way of selling different? Because I know we talked to a lot of product-led businesses. And I mean, <laughs> the last one um, we were chatting, talking with, they totally like, not fired, but they, they got rid of their sales team whenever they became product-led. Yeah. And so the reason why is the majority of that team was all kind of like the traditional challenger sales model. Mm. And then they realized that he needed more of like a support driven culture to really help these people um, become successful. And so I'm yeah. curious to hear your thoughts on even just the, the way they sell, like how is it different uh, versus the more traditional sales led company? Yeah. So a couple of things that have really worked to our advantage here. One is that we're bootstrapped. Um, so we are resource constrained and we're not in a situation like other venture funded companies that have a lot of money in the bank and can say, let's spin up a sales team and see what we can make happen. And so I think a lot of companies are in that situation where they say, we're going to develop a sales team. We're going to develop a sales playbook and we're going to hire five or 10 people. and then they discover that the sales model doesn't work or they discover that something needs tweaking. And that's when you wind up firing the sales team or firing, firing the VP of sales because things aren't going well, right? And, and I've seen this happen in other companies. And so it's really worked in our favor to be, to be bootstrapped and to hire organically as our model is proven out. So um, we, we, hire that, we hire that first salesperson. We can prove that they can sell and then we can start to back into what do we think 
is reasonable for a person to be able to do in terms of, you know, how many customer outreaches can they do? How many demos can they do a week? Is there a quota? What sort of quota should, should we have? And, and I will say for a number of years, we've been anti-sales, you know, our very first salespeople were not, didn't have commission or, or anything like that. We wanted people to be enthusiastic about the product, right? And to, not that the product can sell itself, but you need to have people that are just driven intrinsically because they know it's the right thing to do. And so that's the model that we're working with. And as we've grown, we've been able to prove out that model over time and build up and not over expand the sales team or the customer success team, or actually any part of the department, any department here at the company, because we've been able to prove out what the model is and what that repeatable model is. And so, you know, I cross my fingers that we never have to get to the point of needing to let people go because something isn't working, because we're proving it out with each hire and learning along the way. Interesting. And so you mentioned for the first hire, there was no kind of sales commission for any of those sales. Has that changed? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not going to go into details about what the compensation models are, but, uh, but definitely we have uh, incentives that are aligned with the company or where we want to go. And these incentives align with our customers as well. You know, we want to have, we still don't want to have this high pressure sales model because we know for a fact that product managers you know, that just doesn't work for them. And so we still have a model where we work closely with champions. We try to do, we do a a value selling model where the very first conversation we have with people is not a product demo. It's not about this feature, this feature, this feature. It's about, tell me about your product management processes. Tell us about how you roadmap. Tell us about the challenges that you have. And then we start talking about how our product can potentially solve those problems. So it's a very it's a it's a different sales model than I think you would find at most at most companies. Absolutely. Well, this conversation has been really interesting. I love how you've been able to take us through the very beginning of just how you did a lot of those interviews from the beginning to make sure you're building the right product to product market fit, launching that first self-service arm of the business, and then getting to a point where you realize hey, this is so successful, we could even be more successful if we layered on a sales layer on top of this. Because Mm -hmm. I don't think many people can uh, work through that whole journey uh, many, many times. So it's awesome that you'll be able to share that. So for people that want to just learn more about you and what you're up to at Product Plan, where can they learn more? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So productplan.com. We have, as you mentioned, a free trial. Uh, We also have so many resources for product managers. We have a product road mapping book that you can download. Um, You can go to our resources section of the the website to look at the the books. We've just recently uh, released our 2020 product management survey that talks about challenges the product managers are facing and how they're doing their product planning and road mapping today so you can understand what your peers are doing. We uh, have a lot of webinars that we've conducted and you can view those webinars on the resources page. And then we have a blog um, and we release several articles uh, every week that talk about product management best practices, uh, regardless of what solutions you're using. These are just core practices that help product managers build better products. And then finally, feel free to connect to me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm Jim Semick. It's S-E-M-I-C-K. And uh, happy to connect and talk about product management. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been yeah. an amazing chat. I've been really enjoyed it. Oh, good. Me too. I really enjoyed it. And it's good talking with both of you. Likewise. Thank you.